Hi, you've called the Mojo Radio Show. We can't come to the phone right now because we're about to start the show. But please, wait for the tone and the boys will be with you shortly. I got my mojo working, but it just won't work on you. Hey everybody and welcome to or welcome back to the Mojo Radio Show. Welcome aboard the Big Red Bus. It's back on the road. If you're new uh, on the bus, what's the show about? Well, it's basically a, an eclectic collection of interesting people who we think have got a point of view or opinion or they know something that we don't, but we want to find out what it is to help us get our own mojo working. So what have they done? How did they do it? How do we apply it to our own world? And it's a big show today. This is a cracker. We're heading We're heading due north. We're heading straight up. We're going up the mountains. Put your mountain boots on, kids. <laughs> we're heading, we're speaking to a guy who climbed Mount Kilimanjaro on all fours. Why, you ask? Because he literally has no arms and no legs. The most astonishing guest. So he actually wasn't even on all fours. Well, if you watch the videos on YouTube, you kind of, yeah, it's, it's, I don't know how to describe it, but it's just an astonishing, astonishing human being. And I've got to say, in the show, he is very raw and very humble and very sharing. I think this is an absolute cracker. Before we start, salute to our Patreon supporters. You know who you are. Thank you for kicking the can. Helps us cover the cost. The show's free for you, but it's not for us. So we salute and thank our Patreon people. Before we get going, we need to have a quick financial meeting. We need to upgrade the big red bus to a double-decker because with social distancing, we can only have 12 on the bus at the moment. Well, there's only three of us and Lola's in a road case, so I think we're good. And given the back seat's taken up, there is we don't need to social distance with AP because he's taken up the whole back seat because he's horizontal to the ground. But anyway, look, that, that, that's beside the point. Robbo's Remarkable Facts. It's about time. Let's go. Well, when you think of ancient Egypt, you probably don't think of great medical advancements. But an archaeological dig back in 2000 seems to have uncovered the very first, get this, the very first prosthetic limb. Dated between 950 and 710 BC, the Cairo toe is the oldest prosthesis in the world. Researchers found the artificial big toe on a female mummy near a place called Luxor. And the Cairo toe, as it's called, is made of leather, moulded and stained wood and thread. It seems that ancient Egyptians frequently created false body parts to prepare corpses for the afterlife, but tests have revealed that this toe was actually functional. It made walking in Egyptian-style sandals significantly easier and the lack of pressure points on the prosthesis made it more comfortable for extended use. So, um, man, we're talking, what, almost a 1,000 years before Christ and there was prosthetic limbs. I found that incredible. And hello to all our friends at the Luxor Casino in Las Vegas. <laughs> if you want to kick the can, see what I did there? Ah, oh, you're on it this morning. The Mojo Radio Show. <laughs> we don't take ourselves too seriously. Oh, thank God. Uh, before we start, a couple of quick things. Great feedback on the Chris Wilson show from last week. Uh, Chris was the author of a book called The Master Plan, a wonderful story of redemption. And this is a guy who really has turned his life around. We had some amazing feedback on it. So if you haven't taken the time to listen to the show, go back, have a little listen. I promise you, you will not regret it. Very cool show. 
Uh, also, this is I found this interesting. This is a, a salute to a student-run grassroots movement called FarmLink. Now, I collected this one for you, Robbo, because mm. FarmLink is a bunch of students who got together and they're connecting farmers who've been forced to throw away food because of the coronavirus pandemic and they're connecting them with food banks across the U.S., so there's like more than now 20 students and recent graduates have all gotten together to work on this. It's been going now for a couple of months. They've collected hundreds of volunteers who sign up and they've moved almost a quarter of a million pounds of food that farmers would have thrown out and distributed it to food banks and paid more than $4,500 in wages. So I think that's really cool and it's just you get a bunch of kids who go, what am I really good at? Where's the need? And then you start to have a crack at it with no excuses. I think it's a beauty. Good on you, FarmLink. Absolutely. You know where that takes me. That takes me all the way back to about episode four or five of the Mojo Radio Show, The Real Junk Food Project, those guys in, uh, yeah, in the UK. Yeah, that's why I raised it. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. The other thing I was found interesting is Amazon and Whole Foods, two of the massive retailers in the States. Hello to our friends over there. I hope you're staying safe. They develop robots that blast UV light, a purported coronavirus killer, <laughs> onto high-touch surfaces like freezer handles and food containers. So the idea is these bots are running around Amazon or running around Whole Foods mm. with this blue light blasting the aisles. <laughs> Has anyone told Donald Trump about this? He might have some uses for it as well. But it's amazing with these things that how quickly this stuff has been developed because we're being forced into it. And it's the same with vaccines, the same with how we work remotely. If it hadn't been forced upon us, it just goes to show that when you actually have laser beam focus and you have got a strong why, you'll find the how, which is what we'll talk about during the show, I'm sure, with Kyle. So I, uh, I, I find this stuff absolutely fascinating. All right, to kick us off, this is an early pop quiz that sets up the show. Pop away. The Mojo Radio Show. Pop quiz, hot shot. Tom Cruise, Jay Leno, John Belushi, Robin Williams, Vince Vaughn, Harvey Keitel, Ashton Kutcher. Lane Stanley from Alice in Chains, Garth Brooks, Ludacris. What do they all have in common? <laughs> uh, I got nothing. I have no idea. No idea whatsoever. I figured you wouldn't. Lola. I'm listening. What do they all have in common? According to my database, I believe they were all wrestlers. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, I mean, I knew you wouldn't get it, but I knew Lola would, being the world's first fully automated studio assistant. Uh, thank you, Lola. No problem. In Roy and HG parlance, are they Greco-Roman wrestlers, though? Uh, that I cannot tell you. <laughs> That's something we may need to go back to Lola on. But yeah. our the reason I ask the question is because our very special guest this week is a guy called Carl Maynard. I read Kyle's book, No Excuses, back in 2005 and I have a bookcase with my favourite 25-odd books that I go back to and read every year, if not every other year, and this is one of them. And a couple of years ago, I had just read the book again and I wrote to Kyle to say, hey, I've now got this podcast, how about coming on as a guest? Thankfully, he said yes and he's here today. When Kyle was a kid, he had a dream. 
He had a number of dreams, but one of them was to become a professional athlete. However, he was born with a condition that left him without any arms or legs. It's a condition called congenital amputation. So he has no arms beyond his elbows and no legs beyond his knees. However, that didn't stop Kyle from pursuing that dream he had of becoming a professional athlete. And in school, after having played a lot of football and deciding that it really wasn't for him, he became a champion wrestler and went on to compete at state level and do really well. In his 20s, get this, he became an MMA fighter and opened his own CrossFit gym. And in more recent times, he climbed one of the tallest mountains in the world, uh, Kilimanjaro, becoming the first quadruple amputee to climb that mountain without assistance. Oh, and just in case you wanted to know, 10 days. An extraordinary, extraordinary person. And we are delighted that he is on the line with us today. Carl, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Hey, thanks for having me. Carl, when people meet you for the first time and they don't know your backstory and don't know what you do and they ask you what you do, how do you like to reply? I'd say uh, it's a great question. I, <laughs> um, I, you know, to me, I'm just, I guess, like kind of a explorer of life, I guess is probably the best way to put it. And, you know, just uh, kind of a wanderer in a lot of ways and just trying to learn more while I can while I'm here. And uh, I don't know, that's kind of the gist of it. It's, it is, you know, it's hard to put into words, I think, what it is that I do. And a lot of times I'll be sitting on a plane with somebody and they'll ask me a question of like, hey, what do you do? And I'll tell them, oh, I'm like a public speaker or something like that. Or I wrote a book. And then it's like, you know, their next questions are, well, what's the speech about, you know? And then for the first maybe five years that I was traveling, it was almost like I was like, you know, giving the the speech to each person I was sitting next to on the plane in the same conversation. Mm. And I um, just started making stuff up after a while. And uh, that just seemed to be a lot more fun. It's interesting, Kyle, that I I bought and read your book back in 2005 and I've read it a number of times since. And what what was what I loved about the fact about that is that I read the book again only last week and my highlights and my notes are all through the book. And even from that time, which is some 20 odd years ago, almost 20 years ago, there are things that I recall from the book. So I want to track through the book which was written a while ago, but then also talk about where you are today, which is this wanderer and explorer part. If I take you back a little bit, your dad was a military guy. Did his, did his background as someone who was in the military have an impact on your character as a boy or a man growing up? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think I know for a fact it did on him, you know, and in turn him being my father, I think it, you know, it was like kind of saturated me for sure. Um, you know, it took me a while to, uh, I think it's still something I'm working on, uh, you know, of like maintaining sort of like the same level of like, you know, discipline and appreciation for order and hierarchies and that kind of thing. But, um, in general, I, you know, for, for him, for instance, like he went from being like a C or D type high school student, did a semester of college, and then when he went into the service, he, um, you know, kind of gained more of the requisite self-discipline there. And 
uh, came out and got an electrical engineering degree, you know, from a, like a difficult university. And, um, so it's, it's kind of cool to see, you know, that like his time there, even though it was just, you know, uh, three or so years, I think it definitely really like transformed his mindset a lot and prepared him to be able to have a family. So for sure, definitely like if that hadn't been there for me early going, you know, then I, I think it would have turned out a lot different. And it's, it's incredible. There was a part of the book, the book is called No Excuses and I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but there's a part in the book where even even as you were born, so you were born, your parents discover your condition and you're taken away and then your dad notices that your mum has knocked an intravenous needle out of herself and is basically bleeding out. Your dad has to take control, call the nurses, and it literally is touch and go. When when you think back and heard that story, how, how has that impacted you? Because even from the very first, first part of you being born, apart from the condition, you face challenges and your family face challenges because it could have been a different outcome. Oh, for sure. I mean, think about that all the time. I mean, that, that kind of goes back into like the explore or wander kind of even in my own mind. You know, I think about like that kind of cause and effect type type thing of just everything, you know, the entire history of the universe leading us to have this conversation is just kind of wild in and of itself you know, every time, every day, like I kind of think about that. So, you know, to think about how different things could have been had I not had either one of my parents, right. Then, um, wow. You know, I, I have no idea. Like if, you know, I think about like the other day I was talking to friends, you know, kind of fast forward a bit to like, uh, sports, right. If I had never, been allowed to play football, bam, totally different life path. If I had never won a match in wrestling, then, you know, eventually I would have quit for sure. You know, it just wasn't, wouldn't be fun. And like, wow, totally different life path. Who knows what would have happened? You know, maybe it would have been, you know, equally interesting sort of path. You know, maybe I would have ended up as a a computer hacker, you know, or like whatever I could have been proficient. I remember when I was in middle school, I was like building, you know, sites with kind of like early, you know, HTML stuff. So maybe that would have been in the path, you know, but like the path certainly would have been, been different. And, um, I think very, feel very fortunate right now too, you know, just that the people in my life, like have like really spanned, like the full scope and spectrum of humanity and uh, seeing like different <laughs> people with like sort of, you know, what you would consider like really good kind of, you know, upbringings and like the pros and cons of that seeing people that like had, you know, really kind of just crappy upbringings and then like the pros and cons of that, like, it's just, it's fascinating. There's not, I don't think any one particular path that's like right or wrong. And then this, it's interesting that when you mentioned the word path and upbringing, your parents took a certain approach to your upbringing that seemed to shape the way you have become as a man today and the destiny and your beliefs and your path. Take us back to that time. How? What approach did your parents take to your condition? Yeah, their, their primary attitude was to 
treat me as as normal as possible you know and in the family we kind of call it like the jedi mind trick <laughs> because you know it's like obi-wan says these are not the droids you're looking for right like this is their like their kind of attitude was you're not disabled go figure it out you know it was the and i later learned that where the attention goes the energy flows you know if you put your attention and focus on everything that's wrong with the situation you're going to go and get more of that you put your attention and focus on like the constructive things that you can do and you know not that every day is going to be good but you know, they just wouldn't like allow me to kind of like wallow in like self-pity for, for too long. And I think that's even, you know, been characteristic of like things and experiences that I've had as an adult when I've gotten, you know, down or depressed at times as an adult, then it's like, Hey, you know, snap out of it. That's kind of what my mom would say a lot. And like, yeah, there's, there's some truth to that. Like, I think one of the the dangers that we face right now is, um, there's a fine line, you know, it's like to, to be compassionate and understanding is, is, is not to say that, you know, like sometimes ultimate like compassion is to go and tell somebody to snap out of it, you know, and like wake up, do something different. And sometimes it's exactly what you need to hear. And that's what they would, they would offer a lot, but they also had like, you know, the softer side too. It was, um, you know, a good balance that they found. What would, uh, I suspect there were times Kyle, that you found yourself falling into the comparison trap. What was your mum's dialogue during that time when when she suspected or caught you comparing? Uh, I think it still happens, you know, for sure. Like, it's, you know, that's, that's something that no, nobody, like, you know, that, that doesn't ever... That doesn't ever go away. I think that that's just, you know, it's something that it's funny that like we think that like we're just going to like grow out of things, you know, or that like someday I'm not going to compare myself to other people or I'm not going to judge myself to this or that. It's like, nah, nah, you're human. You're, you're screwed. Like you're going to forever. And, you know, it is what it is. It's like, then it's like, I think maybe the right way to go and look at that. And I don't, I think this is kind of like paraphrasing something that she would say is like, what are you comparing yourself to? And, you know, at that point, like, okay, then it gives me like a different frame of reference. Like if I'm comparing myself to, you know, I, I don't know, like somebody that's had, you know, eight New York times bestselling books and has, you know, made, $30 million in speaking last year or whatever. Not that even that they care about that, but it's like, you know, that then it's okay. Then I'm not there. And, you know, it's, I don't know, but yeah, if I compare myself to who I was yesterday, which I know is something that people hear all the time, but how often do we actually go and do it? Then like, yeah, I feel pretty good about who I am today. We, we interviewed a guy called Paul DeGelder on the show some a few seasons back, and he was a Navy diver who was attacked by a shark whilst working in Sydney Harbour. And it was a harrowing story about him and how the shark attacked and he lost a leg and an arm. And I've met Paul a couple of times and he has prosthetics and he will quite happily put out his right arm as a prosthetic to shake hands. What's different about your story is that even in kindergarten, you said no to prosthetics, and to this day you don't use them. What what was the thinking behind that? Why? Because a lot of people we've interviewed in the show who have a condition of, of 
amputation have gone with prosthetics. You said no, even at the even at a young age in kindy. What what do you remember at that time and why? Uh, I think there's a few factors. One is technology is a lot different. You know, I, I'm not opposed to having like the full Tony Stark Iron Man suit at some point. <laughs> you know, like to think that that would be an interesting outcome. But I would say the there's there's a big difference between somebody who is born with the condition and is congenital versus somebody who like has something later on in life, right? Like um, the gentleman mentioned there, like he spent his whole life like reaching out with his hand to go and like, you know, pick up a, a drink or whatever, right? And then like now all of a sudden it's not there, then maybe it's easier for him to be able to go and do that. Like his brain is wired that way to be able to respond that way. For me, I'm like my brain's wired the way that it's it's wired, right? To go and do things the way that I do them and, and I've never used them. So effectively I'd have to go and learn an entire new way to go and do it again. It'd be like being a two-year-old, you know, learning how to walk or run. It wasn't just your parents that had an impact on your growing up. And something your grandmother said to you, your grandmother said, God doesn't make mistakes. Even from a young age hearing that, how did that how did that influence your belief system growing up, Carl? Because, and I guess the reason I'm interested in some of these things is because those people who are listening who are fortunate enough to be parents or have children or influence over children have to be really careful about what we say. And as you've already said during the show, demonstrate because our people around us, the children can take that up and actually become part of their own belief systems. But that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? God doesn't make mistakes. How did that impact you growing up? I, I think that that was, you know, without that, it, it probably would have been too much to bear psychologically. And, um, you know, I think my faith in, in my childhood helped get me through the darkest, toughest times. And I can't imagine experiencing that without that, you know, and kind of the idea of faith and, you know, belief in religion and higher power, that kind of thing is like evolved significantly or changed, I guess you could say like, you know, a lot since I was a kid, obviously. And, um, I don't know, I, I find it, um, it would be incredibly difficult for a kid that was facing similar challenges that didn't have like a similar belief structure. I think like it was so important and, you know, for a while, I'd say in my 20s, 20s, like I definitely became significantly more agnostic, I guess you would say. And like, you know, I think just feeling kind of separate from it. And then, you know, it's been a pretty wild spiritual journey, I'd say, and philosophical and all that. Like, I think there's no stone I want to leave unturned kind of personally, but like, um, you know, I don't claim to know who or what God is, but I, I believe in you know, in it. <laughs> and, um, I, I think that like I'm experiencing, even in you saying that now and hearing that, you know, her saying that it's like, yeah, like I experienced it in a completely different way t- today than I would have even five years, 10 years, or, you know. It's funny if I could just ask you about that because faith obviously is mentioned through the book and there's a, a passage in the book where you say, God, made you like this for a reason. But then in the book in 2005, you said, I'm still trying to work out what the reason is. As we talk to you today, have you worked it out? Probably. I mean, you know, it's, 
it's it's different. I think it's I guess the reason has become less important and more of just a general acceptance for it. You know, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like it's, um, I think eventually, like there's, I don't know. Maybe, maybe this won't make sense. I, and I, I'm just kind of speaking like off the cuff here. Like, <laughs> but like I. I think that there's there are even deeper questions than why. I think like the uh, um, the nature of how things go, maybe even like a deeper aspect than why. I don't know. It feels like that to me right now. Like if I focus on why, you know, all I get are more questions. If I like just do something and like I, you know, go work out or whatever, like I, you know, and I focus on like, how am I feeling? And like, you know, what am I doing? And like all those things and like, who am I looking to connect with or, you know, touch or do something with, or like, you know, whatever, like, uh, then it, it's just a different kind of experience. Like, you know, the, it's almost like, I mean, the why question I think is, is so powerful. I think it was, you know, the Nietzsche quote, right? The man who has why can endure almost any how. I think that's really powerful too. I'm not saying to not like find, like, I mean, a huge part of the message is find your why, you know, find that thing that gives you purpose, but like, don't, you know, I, I think I've spent a lot of time like asking those questions instead of just going and, and like living life. Part of the story from the book been well documented on Oprah and Larry King, the interviews you've done, is that you played football, went from football into wrestling, fell in love with wrestling, worked so hard season after season, but it took 35 matches for you to finally win. And Chris McChesney, who used to study with Stephen Covey, he wrote The Four Disciplines of Execution, said that if you want to motivate people, catch them winning. Like find a win is the best Mm -hmm. way to motivate them. After 35 matches, you finally win. And it's a fabulous chapter in the book that talks about that moment where you win. What difference did that make to your belief systems at that time? And how's that carried through in your career since that time. But winning, take me, can you remember that moment where you won and the impact it had on your belief system and character? Yeah, I mean, even I kind of mentioned it already a little bit that like had that not occurred, I certainly would have quit. I mean, nobody's going to do anything where you just lose forever. And it just, you won't. Like even like I think animals when they play together, like, will like let the other animal win a little bit, you know, like if one just beats the other one up and constantly not fun to play. So it's, yeah, it's kind of for sure. You know, if I hadn't won, then I don't think I would have come back that next season. And that next season I won a bunch of matches. So it, it like radically altered the belief system. And, and then it, it, Sometimes a lot of, I think a lot of it is like, we just give ourselves permission to like, I like had this like belief in my head that like, I had to, like, I was just, I'm going to lose. Like, and that was the belief that I had going into the match. You do anything with that mentality and like, it's probably not going to work out very well. And, you know, I think, cause it's just so much of our, uh, 
competitive ability even like is required by like our attention again coming back to the idea like where the attention goes the energy flows well if your attention's on all of the reasons why you're going to win then you start looking for all of the evidence as to why that's the case and like you'll feed your psyche more with that you may lose still but i mean you got a heck of a lot better chance going that that route than you do alternatively i think if we fast forward from those days of wrestling to more recent times, Kilimanjaro, one of the great mountains to be climbed in the world. You conquered Kilimanjaro. What was the greatest fear you had to conquer in your own mind, Carl? I guess you could say that the mountain itself was kind of a metaphor for that whole process that led up to it. And it, you know, the full year ahead of time was one of the most frustrating, challenging, like, you know, insane, like just, um, <laughs> very like, uh, it was like a game of Thrones plot line, almost like, just like with like treachery and, and deceit and like, just, you know, interesting characters and friends and foes. It was just a, a wild journey to get there. And then when we got there, I had only had the equipment that I was climbing in for like, we got it literally like the final gear set dialed in two weeks before the climb, three weeks before maybe. So it barely broken it in, you know, I was training in sort of like bike tires and bath towels and duct tape to get to the mountain. And I just remember seeing the mountain for the first time and thinking like, this is a terrible idea. Like what, what have we done? Like it, it, just seeing it from uh, base to peak, because right? it's a freestanding mountain. It's formed by volcanoes. It's not a part of a mountain chain. So it's, um, you know, it's like it's nineteen thousand feet, five thousand six hundred meters. It's you know the highest freestanding mountain in the world, and so you just it's just the only thing in your field of vision, towering above the clouds, and I'm like man, this is, this is like unlike anything I've ever seen. And the, a couple of days later, as we approach the gates, you go through the gates and the gates open up and it's just like the gates of Jurassic Park. And, you know, walking through the rainforest at first, I mean, it, it felt like, you know, and you're in the dense, deep jungle. I mean, there's anthills that would like, just like, billions of ants like pouring past it you know we so many of us like get ant bites on the team and stuff you know and just like the bugs that were like jumanji style i mean it's just insane then a few days later you're you're in the uh deciduous forest in the desert and the you know then finally into the the um the tundra up top and uh you know, and then at that point, the rainforest is completely out of sight that you were started on. It's just, it's just wild. But think, seeing it for the first time, I, I really did did not think that, like, I was just, my stomach turned and thinking this is just a terrible idea that we're here. Corey Johnson was a private in the U.S. Army and he died serving his country in Afghanistan. And you made a promise to Corey's mum you would bear crawl, which you did, up Mount Kilimanjaro and spread Corey's ashes at the summit. And you made that promise and you did that. When you got to the summit, 
and you were thinking about Corey, what was what did you say to yourself or what did you say to Corey when you finally got up there and did that for his mom? I believe the words I said was it was, you know, an honor to bring you here, brother. And I think really truly like what I'm you know, what I felt was that um he kind of became like the tenth member on our team. Um, we had and a bunch. We had a bunch of uh, porters as well, but we had nine American climbers. Um, Joey was on the team, who you kind of have been coordinating with, and some of my other closest friends. Two close friends that filmed for ESPN for the climb, and you know, and so I don't know, but I I, I felt like like Corey's presence was with us, and in one day in particular, and in a morning where I was pretty sure I was broken to the point where I was like going to wake up and consider quitting. And I just kind of bit down and thought about him and just like kept going. And my pace quickened maybe 40, 50% after that. And, um, you know, it just, there was a lot of emotion there. As, as you mentioned, my dad, being in the military, like I, you know, I grew up having that dream of wanting to go and serve myself. And, um, you know, having the honor to be able to go and carry, carry him with us. Like it just, like it was palpable. And I think, um, I genuinely don't think that, like, without that, like, I, I wonder again if I would have, if I would have been able to, to like make it, or if it would have just, you know, if I didn't have that thing to fall back on as, as like a, you know, that's like a, a deeper why moment, I guess you could say, right? That like really like uh, kept me going. So it's really, it is wild to think about like how interconnected those things are. Yeah, well, I was about to say that. It's it's funny because it goes back to the head of the show. We talked about the focus on the how and take the step. Then you've got that powerful why. So there's almost this disconnection where you have to have both of those things going to get the full. Yeah, yeah. Isn't it? I mean, it's that that because that, that moment you had where you were broken, you did call upon your, it doesn't matter, and the how part was broken but the why part fueled it. But you can have the why but not take a step and not have the equipment and then you may not go anywhere. So the two yeah, for sure. have it's to all, sit I together, mean, aren't they? It's so true. You know, I mean, and, and to say that like one is more important than the other is kind of naive, I think. You know, it's it's just, it, it's all, <laughs> it's all uh, necessary if we're trying to go and do something bigger, for sure. But I think really maybe a takeaway for your audience i think in that respect is like just a you know how often do we have that, that moment of introspection to like reevaluate that how and why you know and and all the other things that go along with it too and you know what do we want in, in life all that i think right now you know in quarantine i think people it's not like we have a shortage of, of free time to be able to go and like think about this kind of stuff. And my hope is, is that on the other side of it, we've come out stronger. I know it's, you know, a lot of like doom and gloom and, you know, and, and pessimism that we can hear and fall into. And I've been there myself too, but, um, you know, we've overcome deeper challenges as, as a species for sure. 
Something I heard you say, which just ties back to this story about your dad, Corey, and you had a dream of being in the military as a young fella. And that didn't happen as much as you tried, like you, you did everything you could to make that happen. But then I also heard you say that your dreams could be a gateway to another dream that you could not have foreseen. And it's almost, this, this interview almost illustrates that where your upbringing, the, the, having, having a dad who influenced you, the influence it took from it, your desire to be in the military, that didn't happen. But then by having that dream, it's allowed you to achieve other dreams that you probably would not have been able to foreseen that many years prior. It's really nice when you hear yeah. these things and then you can yeah. actually unpack them to see, well, actually it's there's rubber <laughs> right. on the road, so to speak, isn't it? <laughs> totally, it is. I'm, I think I'm gaining more from that than maybe anybody else would. So <laughs> I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I, I, I hope um, this is useful to somebody else, but this is great therapy for me. So thank you. <laughs> oh, I'm finding it useful. Um, Carl, there's... there's and I'll post it on the show notes. There's an insane video of you and Joey and your crew going up Kilimanjaro. And to create a visual for all of us is you are on all fours. You've had specially adapted, and I call them shoes, put onto your arms and to your legs. And you are basically crawling one rock at a time. And you developed a philosophy during that climb to get you through it. Take us through that philosophy. Um. It was a it was a borrowed philosophy actually. It was uh I mean I guess most good ideas are, are pretty borrowed, I think you could say, but there's um there was a, a guy that I had I'd like heard about and read the book for he was the host of a, a TV show called Future Weapons before. He was a former Navy SEAL, his name was Richard Mackowitz, and he had a mantra that said, uh, not dead, can't quit. And so my, um, yeah, you know, I think like the, the handful of philosophies that were developed were like, you know, state of that mantra. If I hear a voice in my head, I know I'm not dead, so I, I can't quit. And <laughs> it's, um, it's it served me well to this point. And I think, you know, like other people, when you get to a really tough point in life and maybe, a physical thing, but even in like an emotional or psychological point in time, right. Where like, you just got to take another step forward that not dead can't quit mentality can, can help get you there. Then, you know, I, I read somewhere that like, um, somebody said something about like, if you're, you know, sailing on a sailboat to try to catch the sun, you know, you, you some, you won't look back and see that you may have crossed an entire ocean. And so I had a moment of like sitting on a sheet of ice basically and, and looking back and seeing the rainforest that we started out in like so far below us and far away. And that was pretty wild just to like see how far we'd come, not only on that physical trip, but like just the year long process to get there. And then um, I think uh, another really powerful lesson that I learned and a different mountain, Mount Aconcagua, and then a, you know, probably the the toughest moment of, of that climb and the final summit push, and the fact that like 
it really was running out of time to to go and reach the summit before I got turned around was was basically like, you know, any thought positive or negative about reaching the summit doesn't matter because I either have to I'm not going to die there, right? I'm not going to allow myself just to like give up and die in that spot. So either I keep going forward or I turn around and I go back. If I keep going forward, you know, then any wasted calories of of energy in my brain to, um, you know, to not for that aim of, of hitting the summit are kind of, it's a waste. And I don't need to like even worry about that. I just need to put my head down and focus on the three feet that are in front of me. And and that's it. And literally, you know, when I'm hiking, it's not the most difficult thing in the world to put my head down. And then, you know, this is just, that's a kind of natural position. And, uh, and it's just three feet at a time. And so I would, anytime that my mind would wander off, I just bring it back there. Like, this is the only three feet in the world that exists right now this is the only three feet that exists right now and just kind of turn that into a game. And all of a sudden, like, again, my kind of pace was, was faster. And like, I, I didn't even like it, like the pain changed and, you know, what was, was extremely painful before where my attention was focused on the pain then became something much more manageable. And, um, and we ended up making it 4.15 p.m. Like I, 4 p.m. was our turnaround time, but we made it at 4.15. And that was the, um, yeah, that was kind of like their guide. Give us that extra 15 minutes, you know, and, and hit it. And it was, that was just a really, really special moment for sure. Three feet of gold, Robert. Absolute gold there. Mountaineering gold. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, I'm just going to get Robert to put the indicator on on the big red bus and take an off-ramp here just for a second. Uh, we talked about philosophy. And you just dropped three bits of philosophical gold, mountaineering gold, in that passage. You you enjoy your stoicism. You're a fan of stoicism. I've heard you talk about Marcus Aurelius, one of the great stoics. The question I've got is that the Mojo Radio Show's organised a special dinner. You are present and Marcus Aurelius is there with us, and you're at one end of the table camped. You got yourself a drink. We got great food, a couple of steaks, and you could ask Marcus Aurelius a question. What would you want to know? If you'd have a glass of wine with me, the the reason why too, I'd ask that the relevant reason why is because he was known not to drink. And I suspect his answer would be no. And then I could ask him why not. And then we could have a conversation. And if he did have a glass of wine with me, then it'd be great. And we'd just get smashed. It's <laughs> 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 as amazing as Marcus was. And he's, this is like by no means at all. Like he is, you know, a Titan of, of fortitude and like, and to, to be in his position of like the emperor of Rome at that point in time in history, like and the temptations and all those things that he was offered, like insane to think of like his, his level of like practice stoicism, which really kind of like refrains him from partaking in, in these things. But my attitude is, is that like, I think that we're, we're here in this life in part to experience 
things and to in, indulge a bit, um, you know, and, and, and perhaps like, you know, I was talking to my parents about this other day and like, you know, you know, like sort of like uh, Jesus's first miracle in the Bible is turning water into wine. And yet, you know, there's certain like the Baptists, you know, have kind of been known to like be anti-alcohol and all these things. And um, I'm like, well, that doesn't make any sense then. Like if that's the case and, and their point was, and I kind of get it is it's not the wine that's the issue so much as the drunkenness. And I've had moments where, you know, like I'm puking out of a taxi cab window in Sydney, you know, and like I'm <laughs> definitely not at my highest self in that moment. Right. Like something in me is not, um, I'm just not, not my best self in that, that moment in time. Not that like I regret those times or whatever, like I've, you know, they're part of me and like, um, it's kind of in my nature to like flirt with, uh, overindulgence of things, I guess you could say, but like, there's a danger in that too. And, and it, it, for sure, alcohol has ruined many lives and there's a, an absolute shadow side to it, but there's a beautiful side to it as well. And to deny it completely, I think is, is really where his, his, his philosophy and mind kind of part ways, I guess you could say, um, you know, it's as, as much as I admire him, I think it's an incomplete perspective. If you don't allow yourself the freedom to, to actually enjoy, like one of my friends, he said, um, hell is ultimate discipline. <laughs> and I thought, huh. <laughs> you know, perhaps that's, perhaps that's true. And like, I think in, in life and in the world, like, the mind is powerful enough, you know, to make a hell of heaven or a heaven of hell. And, and, you know, in, in earth right now, you have some people that are walking that are in heaven and you have some people that are walking in hell. And, and sometimes it might be a different thing for a different person on each day. I think David Goggins, David Goggins would agree with you, I think, mate. I think David Goggins would be one to, to be able to say that hell is the ultimate discipline because there's a man who's been to hell and back a number of times. Um, I've got a question for you. You... You talk about your admiration for people who challenge assumptions. What's the last or the latest assumption that you found yourself challenging? I think most recently it's the fact that like I had some part of me had ruled out a lot of the faith that I grew up with. And I find myself increasingly drawn back to it. So I guess the assumption with, that I was making was that like it, it wasn't as of much value as, as I thought. And, you know, and I think that, cause I think a lot of times, you know, we look at the Bible and we're like, oh, okay, this is just this old thing written, whatever, blah, blah, 2000 years ago. And it's, but it's like, wow, there's, there's actually like the depth of, of wisdom inside of this thing is, is like way beyond um, way beyond me. I'm going to switch gears. Robbo, this is something we haven't done before. I've got a pop quiz for our guest. Ooh. If you're up for it, Carl. Ooh, all right. Here we go. Don't trust him. He cheats on these too. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is someone you admire. Uh, American singer, songwriter, musician, record producer, actor, winemaker, and wrestler. Major James Cannon. Name. 
<laughs> the band? Tool. Or Perfect Circle, <laughs> Pucifer. AKA the greatest rock band on the planet. <laughs> Name your favorite song. Oh, that's a tough one. Oh, man. Um, right now, the one that comes to mind is 46 and 2. Oh, there you go. Out of the many that you could pick, Toyo, I must say. Now, I find it amazing that this guy, and I can see, it, it seems like this guy is a generalist and has lots of different interests. My question is why Why do you admire Maynard James Keenan? What is it about him that you go, yeah, it's cool? Clearly he's got a cool name. <laughs> I, I just admire um, the attitude of reinventing oneself and like, you know, not having the fear to like, to, to not do that. And, and I think that that's, um, you know, a big universal theme, I guess you could say is like the attitude of like death and rebirth. And, you know, it's, um, he doesn't really like allow himself to seemingly, you know, really like get constrained in any one thing and like seeks to go and have like sort of like a level of depth and and all things, you know? And I think, you know, it's that whole 10,000 hours to mastery kind of thing. I think there's, there's some truth to that for sure. And like, perhaps one of my greatest weaknesses is like the generalist mindset. And, you know, I think there's a, you know, there's a verse that says in the Bible, it talks about like, you know, wide are the gates that lead to destruction and narrow is the way that leads to the truth. And, um, you know, I, I think about that sometimes I'm like, it is, is my path too wide that leads me towards that destruction? Or is it something that like, like I found the narrow path through choosing to go wide? I don't know. Like, you know, it's, but like, he's another individual who seemingly has done that. He's impacted my life. He's impacted a lot of other people's lives. I mean, the, the, the depth and art and creativity expressed in all of his different ventures, I think is really, is pretty, is pretty cool. And, um, you know, it's, I think that like, there's just a lot of different things to be able to learn and to, to experience wine in, in particular is a fascinating one. Cause it's like the, the grapes and the resilience. I mean, growing those out in the desert too, where he does it in Arizona is, um, it's pretty wild. There is a, uh, a winemaker that uh, has a wine label called El Amigo that we got to taste after we came down off the mountain in South America. And that, that one, I think, like it sums it up. Like he says on every bottle, it's that like at the end of our journey, the only battle is the one that like, the only battle is the, that we really truly remember is that like battle within against the original enemy against ourselves, which in a certain point I think is an infinite thing. You know, it's, it's the attitude of, uh, of mastery and, and battling that enemy within doesn't ever go away which could freak us out on some level and at another level, it's like, actually, no, that's pretty cool. And it's fascinating that like the universe is set up that way that like it's an infinite game to, to quote Simon Sinek. 
It's funny, we, uh, we've spoken about that book quite a few times in the last couple of weeks. I only read it, gee, three or four weeks ago, but I think that is an absolute essential read for anybody. I, I, honestly, I reckon there's chapters in that book, Carl, that he wrote knowing the virus was about to sweep the world because it's so in tune wow. with what's going on right now, the finite game versus the infinite game. Um, just just change gears for a second, you you refer to yourself as being kind of a minimalist in a way. Now, I don't know if you go all the way to say you are, but it seems like you buy into the philosophies of minimalism, which is having less stuff around you, but the stuff that you do have brings means something and brings joy. And the question I've got is one of the few treasures, you've said in your words, one of the few treasures, real treasures that you own, is a Bible your grandparents gave to you. What's the real mm-hmm. significance of that Bible to you? What memories do you feel? What do you see or feel when you hold it? I remember the Christmas that they gave it to me. Um, you know, I remember the conversations that I've had with my with my grandparents. You know about about God and um, you know even the, the difficult ones where you know I try to test it as much as I can and try to understand and kind of pull back the layers of the onion on what, what it was that they believed. And, um, you know, I, I think I, I look at it and I'm like, it's just, you know, I, I actually looking at it right now. Like it's, it's, it's a beautiful book and it's, you know, representative of so many things. I mean, it's like everything, you know, I mean, like it's that the world in large part is what it is because of that book and in some ways great, in some ways not so great. And, um, it's just, it's remarkable. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a mystery as to where it came from and to like what it fully means. And, um, you know, but it's interesting, like thinking about that, like, yeah, I do have a few handful of possessions that like I, I value greatly. And I, I, I prefer to like have that as not to like not value things. It's like, no, like I want to like take like the full value of what I hold and into these things, like as much as I possibly can. But I, I have fully acknowledged the fact that like, you know, uh, I hope this doesn't happen, but like, you know, the, the book could be lost or stolen or taken away. Like that, that is kind of the stoic thing, right? Like if I imagine that possibility occurring right now, like there is a good, there's a good chance that that book could be taken from me at some point. And, you know, I'll, I, I, I'm not going to allow that to make me, you know, too sad anymore about, you know, things like, like that sense of loss. Like I've got to have that book now. And the fact that I've gotten to have that book, it's cool. It's cool enough that I've had it as long as I have. So if I get to have it another day, I'm, I'm happy. We we had a guest on the show uh, maybe two or three seasons ago called Jason Redmond, Jay Redmond, who was a SEAL who got shot basically in the face in Afghanistan in a firefight. Horrific story. He took us to the battleground of that firefight and then – he had 27-odd operations to repair his face. An incredible guy. And he's now known as the Overcome Guy because he had a sign, a red sign, which people can find online on Google Images, 
uh, stuck to his door. Even a president came to see him and that sign was, don't come in here with pity, I did what I... I did what I did by choice for a country I loved, doing a job I that I loved. That. Yeah, and it's it's and it's funny because he's he's become the overcome guy. So during the interview, he said, "There are times when I find myself wanting to quit or give up or getting sorry for myself." And I go, "Whoa, hang on a second, I'm the overcome guy. Everybody expects me to overcome, get a grip." Your book is called No Excuses, and you've built this reputation, brand, identity, character alter ego around no excuses. Do you find yourself at times going, whoa, hang on a second. I'm making excuses for myself. I'm the no excuses guy. Get on with it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, not going to lie. Like the, this, the first, you know, the last couple months of last year, the first couple months of this year were some of the more challenging of my, my entire life. And um, it was a really like, uh, it was a difficult stretch for for a minute. And like, you know, I still had to show up and like I had a handful of speeches that were booked and I found myself like literally having a dialogue and conversation in my head, like while I'm telling the story of like all of the things that I'm not doing, living that way myself. And that like, it was, it was just, you know, and then in a lot of ways, um, I felt a sense of guilt with like COVID and all this because I had four speeches in April that got canceled. And I'm like, you know what, that this is the best thing that could happen to me because now I just, I'm going to focus on myself. I'm going to focus on like all the things that I know to do to be better, to, to feel better, to feel stronger, to feel more prepared, to feel more whatever I need to do to get myself on the right path that I can then give an authentic speech and not necessarily have that simultaneous dialogue and chatter in my head of all the things that I'm not doing. And, you know, it's, so I get that for sure. It's like I have had that feeling of like, you know, that fraudulent kind of attitude of like, I'm supposed to be motivating other people and I'm not motivated myself. For one, it's not very effective. And for two, it's it's not very fun. And there was another aspect of that too, that like I, my parents, we talked about them wanting to go and raise me as normal growing up and, uh, you know, raising me as normal and that that raising me as normal was countered, you know, with this attitude anytime someone would go and tell me, Oh, you're so inspiring or this or that. And, and like, in a way I was almost bothered by that because that meant that I wasn't normal. And so I, like, I, there was this like disconnect and, and now it's, I think the, the thing that I have to remind myself of is to realize like, um, that, Sometimes even when people go and say things like you're inspiring, then they're doing it more for themselves than they are for you. And Marcus Aurelius talked about this again to go and bring him up. He had a quote that said something like, if you give a flower a compliment, is that compliment for the flower or is it for you? It's funny, Carl, because being a successful author, doing these keynote speeches, Oprah called you one of the most inspiring people she's met. Arnold Schwarzenegger said the same thing, and Arnold's a big fan of our show. Hello to the governor, Arnold, if you're out there, good to have you on board. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> he, he'll be back, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> He's here all day, folks. Um, what's interesting is you just mentioned the fact that you had a challenging period, and I don't think people appreciate the fact that even as much as you've done 
everybody has their shitty days, their shitty periods. And what what really surprised me was I heard that there was a period where you actually got depressed when you started keynote speaking. So keynote speaking, getting in front of big audiences, there's a rewards that go with it, both from people admiring you, talking to you, there's financial, it's profile, it's identity. Yet during that period, you actually became depressed. What was going on then and how dark did it get for you during that period? Yeah, that was a that was definitely a challenging period. Then, and that's not the only season of depression that I faced. I mean, even more recently, like I talked about, kind of coming out of a tougher spell. Um, you know, even as a kid at ten years old, I was ready to like give up on life. Um, you know, but at that point in time, I was nineteen years old and had a New York Times bestselling book. The governor had given me a cover quote for that after I got to meet him at the Arnold Classic, which was really cool. Um, you know, and so like it, this uh, book goes and hits the shelves. I go off on this book tour and, um, you know, went overnight from full-time college student to full-time business traveler. And it was just the transition itself was, was rough. Um, you know, and I was traveling alone. I would haul around a, a massive, gaming laptop computer and go and play like world of warcraft with my friends on the hotel wi-fi when i you know in between speeches you know and, and like that was my form of socialization and um it was yeah it was just a really like it was just a lonely period and and that i felt fraudulent for for you know again sharing that no excuses message when i didn't feel like authentically like that myself but there was things i would think about though too like uh, you know, Schwarzenegger to bring him up again. I heard a story about him. I don't know if this is true, but I assume this, this makes sense where they, you know, he was like a, somebody said that they, they took a photo shoot. They did a photo shoot with him and, you know, there was 10,000 people in the line to get a picture with him and that he literally just held his arms up and held a pose and held a smile for like four or five hours straight. <laughs> you know, didn't take a break, like just had people running up, snap the picture, running up, you know, and just trying to get through as many as he can. And I was like, man, like that's got to hurt, like to put on a <laughs> smile for that long, to hold that pose. Like that's insane. And it's, it's pretty cool actually. It's like, you know, cause sometimes like, yeah, you know, you, you get sick of it. Like you don't necessarily want to go and, and, and smile, but like, I think he kind of realizes that that's just like comes with the territory. Like it comes with part of the job. If you're going to have that level of fame and you're going to also like have a good impression on the world and not have people like left saying that guy's a total dick, you know, then like that, that comes with it, you know, is to sometimes put on a smile when, when you don't necessarily want to. If we're going to tie a few things together here, we talked about minimalism having things that mean more to us and bring us joy. And I know you, I've heard you talk about Bruce Lee and your interest in Bruce Lee. And he's got a quote that says, it's not the daily increase, but the daily decrease. Hack away at the unessentials. In the last, let's say, six, six to 12 months, what, what have you hacked away at? What's something that's been the unessential that you've taken out of your life that's had a profound impact on you? The gut instinct that's the I um, 
that I, that comes to mind is just like the the time it takes for me to actually go and act and do something that I don't necessarily want to do, and that's what I've been attempting to hack away at now. For instance, if I need to go do a workout last night, I ate dinner late dinner and wanted to like let the food digest, and it you know got around to like eleven o'clock at night, and I was thinking, you know what, screw it, I'm gonna skip my workout, I'm just gonna go to bed, and um. And then I had that conversation with myself, like, no, I'm just going to go and I'm going to do it. And I think that like a lot of the, the misery that we put ourselves through is the, the period of time of that, like uh, the debate that we have in our head of the things that we don't want to do. And if you just go and freaking do it, then it's, it's done much quicker. <laughs> you know, I'm looking at like a stack of, uh, paper and bills and stuff like that, that I got to go and like take care of right now. And, um, or at least tonight at some point, you know, it's like, I can sit and like, and I have earlier today, I, I sat and I like, uh, I was complaining about that. And, you know, in my head of not, uh, going and, uh, getting to that. But then like, no, this, I, it's just easier if I just start doing it. Something, that I heard, which I'm fascinated about, which I think you mentioned in the book as well, is you have a great interest in the Native Americans. And I think you mentioned your interest in the Comanche Indians. And then I know your mother has an ancestry with the Cherokee people. What What's the fascination for you? What's the great interest? Why, why, what do you take from either the Comanche or the Cherokee people? Truth be told, I think that the uh, Cherokee thing was... Uh, a similar incident that happened with a certain U.S. senator, <laughs> so like may have uh, overestimated the amount of command, the amount of Cherokee in my blood, but uh, never, nevertheless, I, I have an immense uh, respect for, um, for both both tribes, and I mean many many others. Um, each one, I think, has some very very nuanced fascinating ways of looking at the world. Um, I would say the Cherokee for their, like the depth of their spirituality and the fact that like they could see signs from, from the spirit and, and, and so many different things and their ability to go and interpret those signs led to like a very rich existence for them. Um, and then on the flip side, uh, the Comanche, the first thing that comes to mind in particular, the, um, the Quahati tribe, which was uh, Quanah Parker, the chief. Uh, there's a great book called Empire of the Summer Moon that tells the story. But the Quahati, they they were like the, some of the best horsemen in the world at, at the time. And I think they didn't lose a battle for over 100 or 150 years. Um, and basically until the invention of the repeating rifle. But they could ride for, for 400 miles. They would they would take two horses, ride one to death. They would cut out the dead horse's stomach. They'd drink the contents of it for, you know, liquid and they'd jump on the other horse and, um, and keep going. So they're, they're just like, they knew no, they knew no like limit in that term, you know, and then they just, um, like with all things, you know, there's deep, shadow side to it too right like they were they're known for some pretty atrocious acts you know on both all the different sides i think it's one of the most 
fascinating periods of like, mm. you know, the idea of like, you know, moral history and like who's right, who's wrong, good versus evil. And like how there's no right or wrong perspective necessarily here. Like you got to find your own way kind of thing is like, if you look at the, the intersection of what was happening, especially in, in like the mid 1800s between the Comanche, Texas, the state of Texas, and, um, and the, you know, the union, the United States, it was, it was just wild kind of interaction interplay. Um, so that, and today marks the 184th, I, I think 184th anniversary to the day of when Quanah's mom was kidnapped from Fort Parker. Um, and she was, a Western girl that was kidnapped by the tribe when she was eight years old and ended up raised, mm. raised by the tribe was one of their own. So Kwana's mom was, was white and his dad was a, a Indian chief, Peter Nakona and um, created a, a fascinating individual in, in him. Just something that I'm curious about, Carl, is you just mentioned horses and you would horse ride at your uncle Matt's place in Michigan now, when you jump on a horse, normally it's hands and heels. So that's that's more challenging for you. When you're on a horse, how does it feel? How do you control a horse when you can't do hands and heels? How have you adapted? And can, do you feel as though you can communicate with the horse? <laughs> Not very well, I can tell you. <laughs> Yet, I, like, I had a near-death experience in the Grand Canyon with that. And uh, so, I don't know. It's, it's something where actually, like, I think to, to put in the list of things, like, if I live long enough that I'd like to do is to, like, to, like, do more uh, horse riding and, like, you know, that develop that relationship further. There was, a, um, there was an Irish guy that was born in the 1800s that, had a very similar condition to me that became like a master horseman, master marksman, had a wild story himself. Um, and this journey through from Ireland down into like Eastern Europe, down into India. And uh, anyway, long story short, like he got like abandoned and uh, it was a quad amputee in India is an Irish guy in the you know 1800s and had to like get a job with the, um, um, what was the uh, the post service there? The um, I'm blanking on the name now, but um, the big the big mail carriers and, and delivery service. Like he ended up uh, getting a job there as a dispatch rider, and then um, earned enough money to get his, his way back home, and uh, became like a member of parliament and a sheriff in his county. Had seven kids, so it was a pretty pretty cool story. But he was, a, you know, he had a special saddle too that I got to, to ride in. That was kind of the point of bringing that up was, you know, there's always a way to figure it out. Just like the climbing gear, we, we started with towels and duct tape. So then eventually moved into more advanced stuff to figure out how we're actually going to do it. Just to finish up so you can go to your sister's birthday, because I know you guys are very close. Your dad said that the job of parenting was to make you a better version of him. Have you achieved that? Have I achieved that? (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) 
<laughs> no, I don't think I have yet. Um, I genuinely am far from the man that he is as of today. Doesn't mean that I, you know, the the clock's not up yet. <laughs> Your family doesn't have many rules, but you said that the most important one is that you never quit in the middle of a task or a project once you start. Did that play on your mind on Kilimanjaro? Does that still play on your mind today, that, that the family rule that your dad and your mum and your sisters live by? Does that still part of your DNA when you approach something today, Carl? You know, the interesting thing is, I think, due to the, like coming back to this idea of being a generalist, you know, and like many of my heroes, right, that, that were sort of this broad um, thing, I, I think that like, if my dad were being honest with you and his assessment with me, especially in the like last few years, it's that I've quit a lot of things. Um, I got started, I got like I developed a, a proficiency in something and then I quit and I do something else. And I would go deep into it, but like, you know, an inch deep as to compare to what I could be going and, and doing and, and I would quit. And so I think that that's probably the, one of the biggest shortcomings that I've had. And, you know, the last few years is the fact that like, I, I've quit before I could see what I was capable of, of doing. And it's a lesson I could go back and, you know, reapply. For someone listening who's got a guy who's got a book out, yet you go through your own challenges living up to what you wrote about in the book. Because in the book, and this is this has actually been highlighted in my copy back in 2005, and I highlighted it so heavy that it actually went, it bled through the page with the highlighter. It said, excuses give us a reason to explain to other people why we are too weak to deal with a particular problem, regardless of the size or importance of the matter. So in closing, how, how do you, philosophically, how do you navigate this today? My response to that would be that the, the arrow of time only appears to go one direction. And so literally anything that we've done leading up to this moment in this moment is irrelevant. Whoever you are right now is the sum total of all of the choices and decisions that you made. And whoever I am is the sum total of all the choices and decisions that I've made. And, you know, if I want to find out the, the depth at which I'm capable of, of reaching, you know, I need to like apply that lesson that I just talked about, right? That's a big excuse that I could get over. Uh, so, you know, yeah, like, the things happen and you're not going to always like be your best self. And you're not always, you know, you're, you're going to find excuses and, and, and those excuses, I, I'd say like almost a better title for the book is like always excuses. Everyone makes excuses. Excuses are like something that comes out of the ether, you know, that they're just a part of the human experience and like, you know, and it's, it's not going to ever stop, but it, if it did, I think we might just like disappear or something, you know, like we wouldn't have anything to do because it's almost as if, you know, the depth at which we can find ourselves and continue to go and search and, and look for like is in this sort of void that comes from, you know, the, the excuses in our life. If you were, if you and all of your listeners and me were to, to, to take on, you know, our biggest excuse, 
and do something with it, you know, how different would our lives be in a year? You know, and I think that's something to like think about and reflect on is like, what is the biggest excuse I make on a daily basis that I could just do away with? Carl, I could talk to you for hours. I've got another page and a half of stuff to talk to you about. All right. Uh, Don't threaten. Respectfully, your time. <laughs> You've got somewhere Let's do that, uh, to be. that plan to get Marcus Aurelius drunk in Australia and I'll, <laughs> I'll back down and <laughs> Well, he, he has offered. Yeah, he's a big fan of the show. Um, in fact, I think I think Marcus Aurelius left left. I think he left us a review on iTunes. He's a good man. Um, uh, he was pissed though. There's no doubt about that when he wrote it because he was commenting on uh, what a great show it was. Anyway, um, however, I will extend an invitation if the big man in the vinyls boob tube next to me is is in agreement. We will invite you to Bondi Beach with mm-hmm. Joey. Mm. To do this show, we will bring a good bottle of Australian wine because we know a few wine makers, the actual makers of some of the best families for the first families of wine in Australia. We will do a show on the promenade at Bondi Beach with you and Joey, your best mate, and we'll do the show live. You'll be surrounded by the Bondi Lifesavers and everything else. We will have the best Australian (laughs) wine for you to try. I'm not sure he's interested in the Lifesavers. I'm sure he's more interested in the bikinis, let's be honest. Right. Uh, Let me check my schedule. (laughs) (laughs) What? This time next week, shall we say? Right. <laughs> I think there's a flight that leaves tonight. <laughs> right? Uh, Kyle, we're respectful of your time. Thank you, mate. This is awesome. We really, really appreciate it. It was a, it was a true privilege. Not as much fun as those lifeguards will be, but we'll, we'll talk about that another time. <laughs> Hi, I'm Maria Gronberg. I'm a climber. I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro four times and summited Mount Everest this year of May. Oh man, I'm struggling through the Mojo Show. The Mojo Radio Show. I think, seriously, that's the one episode that will stick out in my mind from the last six, seven seasons. That's incredible. You know, there's honestly, I've got a page of notes to take from this, a, a couple of things that stand out is he climbed Kilimanjaro on all fours. Mm-hmm. We talked about the how, which is just getting started, stop making excuses and start. And then we went back in a full circle to the why. And really it goes back to something we've had as a theme through the show that quite often if you link that why to being of service to somebody else and being of service to Corey and Corey's mum, And he said when he went back and thought about the why and being of service, he said he started climbing at a faster pace. It just goes to show that no matter when you think you're done, no matter where you are, you've got more in the tank. And that why and how, I hadn't really heard anybody put those things together so well. And then the other thing I found interesting, which ties back to a show we did with Todd Herman a couple of seasons ago on Alter Egos, is his Bible that his grandmother gave to him. And I don't know if you picked up on the way he described it with the way it looked, how beautiful it was, but then he related it back to the learnings, the philosophies that come through it, the backstory from his grandmother, how influential his grandmother was to him. So what happens is that that then becomes almost a totem and the totem is it, it, the totem is the thing that helps you get to your alter ego. And I'm not saying he's created an alter ego so much, but I think that totem allows him to go above and beyond the restrictions he may have physically 
to mentally move into a different place. And I, I thought that was a really interesting take out of that little part. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because it's actually one of the parts of the interview that I actually really related with because I actually have something similar. I've got a transistor AM FM radio in the studio that just up there where we can both see from here. And um, that was my grandmother's. And the significance of that is that it used to sit on her table, her kitchen table, and I would go over and visit her and she'd always be sitting there listening to her favourite shows on the radio. But I would inevitably start blabbing when I was over there about how I was, you know, trying to get into radio and finding it really difficult. And she always had a, a cup of tea and a word of encouragement. And when she passed, just after I'd got into radio, my parents said to me and my brother and my my mum's, my auntie's kids, come and grab something, you know, that you would like to keep that's personal to remind you of your grandmother. And that's that was the, the first thing I went for um, and grabbed and it, it sits there and it's funny, I think I've said this to you a couple of times when, when sort of I'm feeling frustrated or discouraged or anything about my work, I look at that and I, I know it sounds ridiculous, but I almost feel her tapping me on the shoulder going, hey, remember what you went through to get here. And um, yeah, it's, it's really personal and really sort of gives me a kick in the butt, to be honest with you. There's so much that Carl shared. I mean, you could do a whole one hour just on downloading all the lessons the it's it's funny when you hear guys like him talk is how threads flow through the show in a more recent times the infinite game versus the finite game and how he tied it back to mastery that life is an infinite game it's an infinite battle and with all that's going on in the world right now we will come through it the game keeps going. The players change, the rules change, the battleground changes, all these things are going on. But what was curious to me that I wrote down was that it's incumbent upon us to become a master. If you go back to Michael Gervais, who was probably one of the best shows we've ever done some time back, uh, who's the sports performance coach for the Seattle Seahawks, and I said to him, what is mastery? He said, mastery of self and mastery of craft. And then when you think of the infinite game and it's about mastery, which is what Kyle mentioned, you go, well, what are you doing each day to master yourself, which is all the stuff we've talked about through the show, and then also mastery of craft, which is, well, how are you being of service to others? It's just I love it when all these threads start to fall in, let alone becoming uncomfortable. And I, I think a saying for the wall in the studio now is going to be hell is the ultimate discipline. <laughs> and we've got a, a guest coming up on the show. Once the restrictions open up on travel and this guy comes back to Australia, we've, we're going to have the ultimate guy who I mentioned during the episode, David Goggins, has agreed to come on the show and do a face-to-face, which uh, in itself is going to be terribly uncomfortable because he is the man. But he's a man who faces hell. And he says, if you're not putting yourself into hell, then you don't know what you're capable of. If you're not uncomfortable, you're not pushing your boundaries and you're not finding your true self. And I don't know, there's just so many things that all all stick together to this interview with people we've had, the threads that come together. I think it was an absolute cracker. It's funny, you know, you may, hearing you say that makes me realise that ACDC had a handle on all this years ago with that song, Hell Ain't a Bad, Hell Ain't a Bad Place to Be. <laughs> okay. <laughs> don't know it, but I'll go with you. Um, now, uh, quickly, just before we close, yes, and I'll throw it to you for some rock to close us out. I know, I know this news 
was very upsetting for you that uh, pro sumo wrestler Kyoto Kaka <laughs> Sutaki, better known, I know you you referred to him as Shabushi, mm, the big fella. died recently in Tokyo of multiple organ failure brought on <laughs> by COVID nineteen. Oh right, okay, mm. wow. The uh, it was only reported as you saw in because you get the, the weekly newsletters from the Japanese Sumo Association. Oh, twice uh, he was only twenty eight years old. Oh wow! Uh, he became ill on April four. Mm. Uh, hospitals turned him away until four days later when he began coughing up blood. So Ugh. I guess the lesson from this is, number one is, I know you're a big fan because mm. uh, you're into your sumo yes, uh, in your Divinal's boob tube. Yeah. Um, but number two is, I guess with this story is, don't take it too lightly, folks. If you have any symptoms, then take heed because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a, a champion like that, the age of 28, to die when hospitals turn him away is just a really sad story. The, 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 the Mojo. Mojo Radio Show. Rock, when we think of amputees yeah. and rock and roll, there's only one. One band stands out. There's only one, Rick Allen. Rick is the, uh, the drummer for Def Leppard and lost his arm in a car crash back in 1984 from memory, um, just as the band was really starting to get some momentum on the charts. And when I was prepping for this show, I, um, I found a, a, an interview of him talking about the accident and I thought you might find this interesting. The very cool thing about my relationship with the band is really nobody ever said, do you still want to play drums? And I never said, can I play drums? Nobody ever said it. To this day, nobody ever said it. It was just assumed that when I was ready, I would let them know. You know what I mean? They, they put a lot of trust in my, my judgment about how ready I was to continue. And that was really big of them because I know a lot of other drummers were calling at the time, you know, Asking about, you know, if the, you know, how's Rick? And uh, by the way, you know, do you guys need a drummer kind of thing? Uh, Which kind of upset me a little bit because, you know, at a certain point I became very determined to play drums again. I mean, if there's anybody who could have had an excuse to give it away, it would be I'm a drummer in a band and I've lost my left arm. Mm Mm-hmm. He could have used his bandmates as an excuse. What's really curious about that clip is that he could have made a lot of excuses. And also the band had more success when he came back to the band. Mm. The band were having some success. They had more success when he came back to the band. He could have made all the excuses to not do it. However, he didn't. But also he could have used his bandmates as an excuse to go, I don't want to let them down, but didn't. But also, to their credit, the band never, the band never reacted in such a way that would make him want to use the band as an excuse. So I think that's just a cracking story, cracking band. We should finish with some rock. If you were going to play a track to take us out from Def Leppard, what would you play? Well... Let's throw this one to the big guy in the voice booth, shall we? AP, what comes to mind, mate? Def Leppard? Well, how about we all get rocked? We wanna get rocked. We're out.
those rocks out of the question. Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the basement of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. To help us get better and give more people the opportunity to touch up their mojo, you can now find us on Patreon. Follow the links on the front page of our website and for a coffee or two a month, you'll get regular bonus material and a copy of Explosive Hits 19, the best of the Mojo Radio Show. In the meantime, to polish your next audio production, check out voodoosound.com.au. For more about Gary, see garybirtwhistle.com and to book me, go to andrewpeters.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.